Tyler Smiley. And I'm John Morrison. And this is the Rooted and Grounded Podcast. Rooted and Grounded is a ministry of Lakewood Baptist Church that creates theological content to grow the church in our knowledge of God in order that we would grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. There it is. And here we are. Live and in the flesh. And here they are. And we're ready. We've actually prepared for this podcast, folks. What else needs to be said? Well, what are we going to talk about today, Tyler? Well, we are going to talk about a psalm because we're talking about the psalms in our series through the psalms, the life of David, vision from the valley, the psalms helping us understand what David was thinking and processing and how he was inspired by God's spirit to write in the midst of the trials and difficulties and struggles and celebrations of his life. And today's is Psalm 110. This is a big one. I mean, they're all big. They're all equally inspired. They're all equally uh, helpful, edifying. God's Word breathed out, useful for correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. But this one's quoted a lot. It's used a lot in the New Testament. By my count, it's a lot. That's an official count. That's an official count. Well, and the hard part was somewhat, it's quoted directly a number of times, which you have here. I've got those, but then it's alluded to. It's alluded to so many times. Several, several times. And that's, I think that's one of the, when you're starting to look at how often things are used in New Testament, one of the challenges is these allusions where you have the New Testament authors who are just soaked, they're steeped in what we call the Old Testament, and Sometimes they're probably alluding without even realizing they're alluding to a particular passage. So someone's sitting out there listening right now and thinking, okay, some's quoted and some are allusions. What's the difference between these? So a quote would be directly word for word. right? So thinking like Matthew 22, right, 44. right? Jesus directly quotes the first verse of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But then maybe... And he says he's quoting... I mean, he indicates that he's right. quoting something. David, in the Spirit, said by the Spirit, there, the Lord said to my Lord. Right. Said, which, says by the Spirit. I, Jesus sees the That's Old true. Testament as... Inspired. Inspired. Yeah. The work of both God and the human authors. That's right. Uh, but an allusion would be more of a reference to it. So, anything... So, verse 5 in Psalm 110 talks about the Lord is at your right hand. So the whole book of Hebrews, time and again, it'll directly quote this psalm, but it also make allusions to Christ being seated in the heavenly realms at God's right hand. Ephesians 1 is another sort of allusion to this psalm about Christ being exalted and seated at God's right hand. So an allusion would be a, an indirect reference where an idea or a concept's mentioned but not directly quoted. So I have... a. Maybe an example of one we've already done, not for 110, because I didn't put as much thought into talking about this for 110, but for one of our earlier songs. I just told people we were prepared for this. Well, we are. Can you edit that part out? Just in in different and unique ways. (laughs) That, uh, well, the the main psalm that we're memorizing as a church, 34. Yes. So uh, Peter quotes 34 in his, in 1 Peter, in the letter, and he has an extended quote where he's drawing out you know this is um so he's pointing to something 
It's not just him talking. But he has this passing glance in 2, 3, chapter 2, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, after you read the whole letter and you see he quotes Psalm 34 later in the letter, and then you go back and you read it again and you say, he says something like, if indeed we've tasted that the Lord is good, you think, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So maybe it was, in fact, that Psalm 34 is on his mind. He's Mm. thinking about it. He's going to quote it later. So you know it's there. You know he knows it. And a phrase like that, that maybe uh, idiomatic, I mean, it may just be a common expression that he may have used, but it's probably there because of what he's read in Psalm 34, particularly because it seems to be on his mind. So, that, you know, all these reasons for why. But you would say that, that in chapter 2, 3, when he does that sort of passing glow, that, that passing brush, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, that would be probably more of an illusion mm-hmm. than a direct quote. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to be quoting it directly. He doesn't seem to be building an argument for that directly. But it's the same language. It's very similar and and he uses that later, so you think he probably has it in mind. So illusions can be more tricky, a little bit more difficult to pin down. You can find a lot. And I think one of the places as a church we probably recognized this recently was when we read through Revelation. Because I think in Revelation there are so many allusions to the Old Testament. Stories, languages, things happening. Uh, and And so you want to say they were probably thinking about the Old Testament text as they were writing. Okay, so 110 has several direct quotes. So it's used in three of the four Gospels, mm-hmm. all the same story with Jesus and the Pharisees, or right. the scribes. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. It's also in Acts. Peter quotes it in Acts. And then, it's you mentioned earlier, it's directly quoted in Hebrews, this psalm is, but then there are several other either quotes uh, direct quotes or other allusions to it in mm-hmm. Hebrews. I mean, three or four, probably at least. So it seems to be Psalm 110, out of all the ones we've done, the one that's most frequently pointed to in the New Testament. I believe so. It's, I think it's one of the most quoted or alluded to passages, Old Testament passages in the New. In all of the New Testament. And I think, Tyler, it'd be helpful to unpack who, when... When the New Testament authors, divinely inspired, look back on Psalm 110, who are they? Who do they see? Well, I, w- I think you start with Jesus. So you say, who did Jesus see? Who is he? How is he using this? Right. When there's such a clear use of a text like this, you think, well, let's go with that. And again, I'm saying let's start with Jesus because he has a, this direct um, explanation of the text. That's right. And uh, we want to give a lot of attention to what Jesus has to say. This is a good thing. But we also, I'm not trying to like elevate, well, if if it's inspired by Paul, it's something. But if it's inspired by Jesus, then it's sort of this extra something special that means even more. Right. There aren't. There's not a canon within a canon where the words that we have recorded of Jesus are any more important than the words that we have recorded of Paul because the same spirit is inspiring both of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, just want to make that clear, but but Jesus does have a direct explanation of what this text is about, and he seems to be arguing, actually, it's really not he seeming, he yeah, just argues for it. I mean, it's very clear. They're 
they're pressing him. They're wanting him to uh, explain difficult things. And and so uh, his response is to push this a question of this text back to them. So Jesus, uh, he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So if these are Old Testament uh, folks who have who've grown up reading, knowing, mm-hmm. memorizing a lot of the Old Testament, they know the answer to that. The Christ will be the son of David. That's what they tell him. Matthew 22. And so he said to them, well, then how is it then that David in the spirit calls the Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And in verse 46, Matthew explained that no one is able to answer him um, or give him a word. And so he seems to have maybe stumped him, stumped the Pharisees. But Jesus understands how this is true. Mm-hmm. Because he is showing them that this finally is going to point to who he is, what he's accomplished. So it finally makes sense when you understand who Jesus is, when you understand the incarnation, that Christ has come to live among it. The whole story fits together. Well, now we know how David's son can be greater than David in Jesus. Because he is in the line of David. That's right. And that's one of the arguments that Matthew makes very clearly early on in his gospel, but also... Luke and and uh, will do the same in their genealogies, but Jesus is the Lord; He is God in the flesh. So, where where in Hebrews is this quoted? Do you remember? Yeah, there's one in chapter one. I know, uh, and I know it's referenced or quoted several different places, like chapter ten. Well, can we look at Hebrews one because yeah. I. I want to take what we see with Jesus quoting it and talking about it, but then also with Hebrews, because I think there there's probably something we can unpack here about how we're supposed to read the Old Testament and right. read the Bible. And I, th- I think that would be useful for you to highlight. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks for that. Absolutely. Hebrews 1.13 mm-hmm. is quoted there, and all of Hebrews chapter 1 is is starting this long argument through Hebrews of the supremacy of Christ over all things. That there's nothing with which Jesus is not greater. And uh, and so in this one, it's um, talking about Jesus over the angels. and um, But it's setting up that Jesus is going to be shown as supreme over angels over all of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, Moses, David, Abraham, that Jesus, uh, he's he's greater than any of the Old Testament, uh, yeah, any of the Old Testament priests, the the priestly system, the covenants. I mean, he's he is supreme over everything, which is why Hebrews, in making that argument, will have so many Old Testament quotes and allusions because they're the, the author's trying to make that case. So in one thirteen, along with many other texts of Old Testament, Psalm one ten is quoted, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? 
for your feet. And then we get chapter 7 and 8 mm-hmm. where it picks up on, so 7.17 quotes verse 5. Right. Or excuse me, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's right. And really 7, 8, 9, 10, all those chapters are all built around this idea that Jesus is a better priest in the order of Melchizedek. 721. Mm-hmm. The Lord has sworn, sworn Lord will has, not change That's mind. right. That's right. You are a priest forever. So, I mean, you read Psalm 110. You and I pick up Psalm 110. We read it. Okay. The first thing that comes to mind is probably not, oh, yeah, this is about Jesus of Nazareth. Right. So how how does Jesus... How is the author of Hebrews, Peter? I mean, really, the psalm keeps coming up again and again in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. How are they seeing Jesus here? Well, they're seeing him as the only explanation of how this can all be true, of how it ultimately and finally makes sense. And they're, because of all the themes that become so necessary for understanding how God is going to accomplish everything that Psalm 110 hopes for, Mm. that uh, there will be a Lord um, who will make the enemies of the Lord sit at, you know, be be his footstool, that there will be a king who's in the order of Melchizedek, who is a, a priestly king forever, that there will be one with, through whom God's judgment will come finally and ultimately, that all people will stand before uh, the way in which God will judge all nations, all people of the earth. And so over and over, you, you're you looking at this thinking that um, it, it isn't merely, Psalm 110 can't just be merely this one time, oh, we want a battle. I mean, it's, mm. it's too grandiose for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vision of it is so, uh, it's massive. And it's uh, it's waiting on God to act ultimately and finally. So, uh, if nothing else, you read the Old Testament and you think, well, we're still waiting. You know, over and over, we're, we're finding ourselves waiting for what the God has promised to accomplish, and he shows his faithfulness along the way as he's bringing it to a head, but it's not there yet. Hmm. And then finally, when you get to Christ, it all makes sense. I mean, it, it all comes together. And uh, I think, truly, if there's maybe a, like a center point, it's it's the cross that brings all of it together. I mean, this hmm. is kind of how can God be Lord over all and judge all and be gracious and kind and all these at one time? Well, okay, look to the cross. So this brings all these things together in one one event, one person, one action. And yet the something like the incarnation of Christ, okay, well, that explains how it's even possible that the cross makes all... So, And then, well, what about the ascension? Well, yeah, that makes sense because this is how Christ will now reign forever. Defeating death. So all of the parts of Jesus' life, they finally all come together to say, this completes it. Now I get it. So, two-part question. One, should we try to read Scripture like this? And if so, how how would we do that? How could we read the Bible like Jesus and like the apostles? Start with the ones that are very clear, like quotes of Psalm 110. So that would be an implicit yes to the... So yes. Okay. Was that right. a yes or no question? The first two parts. Oh, right. First, you yep. said should we. Should. Yes, we should. Yeah. We must. In fact, you... Ooh, you, not even should. We must. Okay. You can't... 
you can't not read the Bible honestly without doing that because that's how the New Testament authors did it. Mm. Um, so as as hey, I'm all for uh, finding the contextual clues for what's happening historically when these Psalms are written. Right. I think it enlivens it. Mm-hmm. I think it shows us even more so the power of God to control history that these are real actual events that take place it's not just fairy tale or made up or or uh, fun morality talk that these this is God directing history as we know it and so you can see how um, we can have confidence in God to do that in our own lives so you you have to read it like that uh, but we have to understand how the inspired authors of the New Testament saw it also that this is all ultimately pointing us to God's true work in Christ Jesus. So start there. Start mm. with the ones that are quoted, and let that be the, the basis for how you start to, to read and understand. And, uh, and then look for it. Look for it as you're reading through. Find, uh, if, if you want like a practical thing to do, most of the time as Christians we're going to be drawn to the New Testament first. I think probably it's what we'll what we'll go to more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Probably though, what we want to do is make sure we're reading repetitively the Old Testament, just getting lots of passes at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just read it. Like even if you just wanted to sit down and just read through it, just do that over and over and over again. And as you're doing that and reading the New Testament, I think you'll start to see, uh, you'll start to sort of sense how the New Testament authors were going about it. There are certainly ways though that you can that you can try to emulate this and it be not helpful, I think, with the Old Testament. I mean, I'm failing to come up with like a maybe a direct I was example. Go on. Yeah. All right. Um, if you're going to, you know, look uh, in some very um, ambiguous, unclear text and try to bring out some, well, Clearly, this says this about like if you were to topic. say like a rock were Christ. Oh, oh, wait, Paul I think does that's that in there. Okay, well, if you said like you took two women and said they represented like two major themes of Scripture, like covenant, like Paul does that in Galatians too. Oh, like oh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to need an example then. Um, you know, I think there are are places that the New Testament authors would not quote. Okay, would be in my mind. Because anywhere that they do quote, I would say that that this is helping us read and understand so Scripture. You think the Apostle Paul is better at reading the Old Testament than, say, Schleiermacher, for example? <laughs> if, if people that, didn't turn it off at Christological reading, they're done now. Uh, yes, I'd say so. Okay, and I would also say that uh, the most recent approaches to to reading the Bible uh, are to weigh heavily on the historical cultural context and those are new newer ways of reading than this uh sort of christological let's well let's see how christ is shown in the text right and we need to see that the historical is a is a building block is a stepping stone to read the bible's overall theological right. message right. like we're we're saying the bible is leading us towards the good news of jesus christ and right. his in his death and resurrection. And so right. we, the historical becomes a stepping stone to mm-hmm. that, that we understand the historical so that we can understand how this is good news for us. Yeah. Because, 
I mean, the New Testament is unashamed in telling us this was written for you. Right. For And for the you being believers in Jesus. That's right. Yeah. I think uh, narrative is a challenge. Mm-hmm. It, it's harder to read narrative and understand what's happening here than uh, than other direct do this, don't do this, this is true, this is not true type text because right. it can... I mean, in a narrative of human history, you're going to find stuff that is appalling. That's right. Because as human beings who uh, have rebelled against God and sin, we do things that are are uh, pretty terrible. So I would say those are areas to be careful with. Right. And then, how you read and understand. And Don't. I think on those sections you look and see, wh- how does this passage, right? You're probably not going to, you may have to, zoom out a little bit, but mm-hmm. how does this section mm-hmm. help us understand better who God is and how he works in the world? Right. Because when we start to see the character of God, we start to see how he acts in the world. Well, that's just leading us towards the fullest revelation of himself in right. Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, I think about a, a topic like, I'm just going to keep going on the question you asked earlier. That's great. And I'm just, I'm just putting myself out there. So we'll see what happens with it all. That uh, when an author writes some, something that, you may hear a lot of times as you get more into in-depth Bible studies is an idea of authorial intent, which is to say, what did the author mean when he wrote it? And those are, that's maybe a helpful category to think through. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you can, you can place too much stock on that because for instance, uh, David, when he wrote Psalm 110, may not have been intending to mean Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, I think we can be pretty confident he didn't, because he, how would he have known that Jesus of Nazareth would, would exist? And yet, when he wrote, Jesus seems to very clearly understand that to be about who he is himself. So that this becomes this category to show uh, what when it was written, what was happening contextually, mm-hmm. historically, but that that can't be the ultimate decision maker in how to understand a text. Well, because we have to understand that the Bible, unlike any other work, has a dual authorship, that God works by the Spirit to inspire human authors. So we say at once, David wrote this, and yet we could also say God wrote this, and both are true. Jesus seemed to do that. Did seem to do this. (laughs) David, in the Spirit, says. Says. Yep. So I think that's an important distinction to make, mm-hmm. that while mm-hmm. reading a letter from someone, you want mm-hmm. to say, well, what did Tyler mean when he said right. X, Y, or Z? Right. But we here we want to say, not only what did David have in mind, but by the nature of prophecy, which Psalm 110 is, what is God intending? Mm-hmm. What, does God, what is God envisioning when he is having David write this? Right. Uh, I think generally as you're reading through the Old Testament— it, your mind ought to be drawn towards how is this showing us who Christ is mm-hmm. or what Christ has accomplished or the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ, or um, how is God accomplishing salvation through this? So we ought to probably think about, we, we should think about all of that as we're reading the Old Testament text. And sometimes it may be more frustrating to see how it fits into the those narratives than others, but... Uh, but yet we would understand that they, they all are working together to get us to that point. So look for it as you read the Old Testament. Because allegedly this is a podcast about Psalm 110. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. 
Speaking of good news, mm-hmm. five verses five and six. Mm-hmm. The Lord is at your right hand. Mm-hmm. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, filling them with corpses. How is this good news? How does this connect to the gospel? Right. I think in several ways. Okay. Number one, this is God's hope for his people to save them. I would say a good thing for a king to do is protect his people Mm. from his greatest enemies. Mm -hmm. Now, oftentimes we're tempted to think that our greatest enemies are earthly, and they're not. Our greatest enemies are spiritual, including sin and death, Mm -hmm. which are very earthly things, but but they're, in in that way, unavoidable things, too. They have this greater... um, greater strength than than the kings or the rulers of the earth. So we're tempted to only have our minds think about those things when we ought to be thinking about our greater enemies, sin, death, the spiritual battles that we have to face. But yet a, a king's role, as we would understand it here too, is to protect his people in all sorts of ways. So if you want a true king, that's what a king has to do. Protect, protect you from your enemies, particularly those who are out to harm you and, and cause you great danger, even peril to your soul, right? So I think it's good news that we know we have a a one who will do that Mm -hmm. for us on our behalf and that it may not look like those people that we don't like. Uh, It may not look like they are all of a sudden out of our lives or that the situations we face in life become much easier, but we have confidence that our true king will destroy our greatest enemy, has destroyed our greatest enemy, so that when we face um, an enemy like death, we have hope. We don't grieve like the rest of the world does. Um, I think for God to initiate uh, his truth and goodness and righteousness and to renew all of the earth, he has to deal rightly with sin and unrighteousness. Mm. And this is a reminder that he will do that. It ought not cause us to hate people or to despise other people, but it should cause us to recognize all of us will stand before a good and righteous judge. The beauty of the gospel is that it's open to anyone. There is no one who is outside of hope in Christ. Mm. Because it's not as if those of us who hope in Christ do not face judgment, but we. the good news for us is that the judgment executed among the nations has already been executed That's for right. us in Christ. That's right. Um. In a lot of the narratives that we read, uh, I mean, that they are hard to probably read and stomach in a lot of ways for, for some folks. And so I just want to encourage that there is a reality that there is a time when all people will stand before our God and will give an account for his or her life. In David's time, many of the nations that were battling and raging against the Israelites were defying and mocking and slandering the one true God of the universe, and at the same time they're holding up their other false gods as their true hope. And as much as David urges and calls and um, shows who the true God is, that our God will... uh, make all things new and right, and we'll deal rightly with injustice. Mm. And so we we hope in that. 
Uh, it ought to give us pause. It ought to comfort us as Christians. It ought to urge us to be a part of sharing this news, good news of, of hope that anyone can believe and have faith and, and get in on in that sort of way. And uh, that, uh, you know, even even in the midst of Psalm 110, you, you see how this is, and, get, and it's, in the, it's in the cross. That's you right. see how Christ, how his love and compassion and his sacrifice for us and for our good, for our salvation, is then ultimately and finally good news because we can have hope in him. That's good. Well, we're almost to 30 minutes. Well, uh, I think we've pretty much talked about um, lots of stuff. I don't know that we nailed Psalm 110, but we sure got around it. <laughs> I would say if you want more on Psalm 110, we yeah. did do a video Yes, for that's intended for folks to watch in their small groups as they're discussing this, which is available at lakewoodlife.org. So... If you want a little more direct discussion of Psalm 110, you can find it there. That's right. Otherwise, or you can email Tyler. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, and I just say, Psalm 110, find these themes and see how they show us Christ. Because uh, maybe more than the other ones, it will help us. Psalm 110 will help us understand how to read the rest of the Psalms. I, mean, I think that's why one of the reasons that you and Scott and and our church decided to emphasize Psalm 110 because we've been making this clear along the way. Tyler was part of that discussion. That was part process. of the discussion. He he was very much in it. He was very much there deciding with us. Just to be clear, that each of the Psalms along the way we've been emphasizing. See how this shows us Christ. See how this shows us Christ. See how this shows us Christ. Mm. And then in Psalm 110, it's I mean you can't avoid it any longer. If you've been skeptical or not sure or un- unclear on how to read those Psalms and see Christ, Psalm 110 doesn't let you get around it anymore. That's right. So now, having read that, and then go and read Matthew 22 and Mark 12 and Luke 20 and Acts 2 and Hebrews 1 and 7 and 10 and 6 and 8 and see how they're understanding this text to point us to Christ. And this week, if you're doing the reflection questions in the in the study guide or whatever we're calling this. Study guide probably sounds too too, ac- too schoolish. Too, we shouldn't that. call it that. Uh, <laughs> reflection guide. Okay. Anyways, if you're doing the reflection questions, each each of the reflection questions for five, five reflection questions takes you through these passages right. where Psalm 110 is quoted. That's right. So that's a helpful exercise. There it is. All right. Well, we're over time, so we need to stop. Can't wait till next week, though. <laughs> Thanks for your time, John. Thanks, Tyler.